Happy Monday, Liberty Kitty Cats. And before we get into today's interview, I want to tell you about an interview that I just had on another podcast called Los Libertinos, hosted by my homie, Carlos Abelar. I had an absolute blast on Los Libertinos uh, talking to Carlos. Carlos, of course, he and his wife, Vanessa, are the owners of Paloma Verde CBD, which you have heard advertised on this podcast before. But today I want to make sure that you go and check out Carlos's podcast, Los Libertinos. Carlos is a super down to earth guy, and he really asks questions in a, what I might call like an everyman kind of way, uh, almost like an outsider who's peeking into the liberty movement for the first time. He's really curious and really asked me some unique questions that I had never gotten before. Uh, so I really enjoyed that conversation. I want to highly recommend you go check out Los Libertinos. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, you can also find it on every podcatcher everywhere. Just look up Los Libertinos and check out Carlos Avalar. And don't forget, while you're at it, go get some CBD over at PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Use discount code ROAR for 25% off any purchase over $75. Yes, that's right. 25% off. Use discount code ROAR over at PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Pop some gummies and listen to Los Libertinos. We need to empower people with not just the philosophical tools, but the inspiration to break free from the system. Welcome to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly dose of education, inspiration, and real-world application from the top minds in the liberty movement. If you want liberty, we need to be better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better businessmen. We need to be better people. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clay. All right, Kitty Cats, my guest today is a documentary filmmaker. Currently, he has two films in production, the subjects of both, which should definitely get us some YouTube strikes of some kind. One is called The Steel, focusing on the movement aimed to expose alleged corruption in the 2020 election. The other is called Q Sent Me, focusing on January 6th and the QAnon Shaman. I am very pleased to welcome Jason Rink. Jason, are you ready to roar? I am, man. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be talking to you, dude. Fantastic, man. So there's a lot of places we can start, Jason, but I think I'll just start uh, with you and getting a little bit of your background. I know, uh, like me, you're a Ron Paul fellow. So I, I saw some of your, your pictures that you sent me with Ron Paul back in the day. So why don't you just start kind of with t- telling me how, how you got kind of into this whole Ron Paul Liberty stuff in the first place and how that dovetailed into what you're currently doing as a documentary filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, and and you know it's funny. Um, you might you know Ron Paul was my real entrance into this larger space of libertarian ideas in his 2007-2008 campaign uh, season. Uh, but actually, prior to that, in the late '90s, I had come across the book "The Federal Mafia" by Erwin uh, Schiff, mm. Peter Schiff's dad. You know, and that was when I first started going the rabbit hole of like uh, income tax and like the Federal Reserve. And so I was getting these little breadcrumbs along the way. Uh, but then when Ron Paul burst on the scene in 2007, you know, I don't even know how I came across him. You know, the internet was a different place back then. Um, I. I just, he resonated with me, something happened. And the next thing I know, I found myself looking for a way to get involved in this campaign. And I went online, I'm like, what do I do? You know? And there was like a, I was in Columbus, Ohio and meetup was the way it happened back then. And I went online and it said there was people waiting for a meetup for a Ron Paul meetup in Columbus, Ohio. I'm like, well, what do you have to do? 
And I was like, oh, you have to have $12? Okay, I guess I'll start a meetup. So I started the Columbus, Ohio, Ron Paul meetup for the 08 campaign. The next thing I knew, it just blew up. We had like 1,000 people in that meetup. And we were just like, you know putting signs up on big barns and Amish country and doing the, you know, banner waves and going to Ohio state games and getting spit on by people who, you know, hated Ron Paul and, you know, all, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a nutty time, but were you just wearing Ron Paul shirts or like chanting and the fed or what, what what caused so much ire? Yeah. You know, to anybody who was involved back then, like it was a, it was a time in which, you know, both sides of the aisle could, didn't like Ron Paul because his message of foreign policy, non-interventionism was considered very non-patriotic, very anti-military back then, you know? Um, and so that that's what you were getting from the people on the, on the right side of, of the aisle back then. And then the people on the left, you know, like Ron Paul was, a, you know, was also not welcome. Some of his ideas were, and then the other ones weren't, you know? And so, um, yeah, that's, that's what happened. And, and it was in the aftermath of that election that then we spun that off into a national, or I mean, a state organization called the Ohio Freedom uh, Alliance and the Ohio Liberty Council. And we were trying to kind of merge with the, you know, uh, I would say the Tea Party that was happening then. So I found myself kind of in, in leadership of the Tea Party stuff that was going on in Ohio and quickly saw that that was getting overtaken by like GOP insiders. And there was not, uh, you know, that the Ron Paul revolution wasn't going to uh, take over the Tea Party. Let's just put it that way. And so, um, so yeah, so that, that, it, that was, that was what happened to me. I was, I was in commercial, I was, had a job in commercial banking at the time. And I came to a point Long of decision where I was, fed, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was. I was going to end of Fed rallies. I was speaking at them, and then I'd go back to Chase, and I'm like, "Hmm, something is not, not something's not in sync here, right?" <laughs> yeah. So I, I came to a point of decision where I had to decide: Am I going to step away from all of this kind of work, or am I going to kind of move forward on it? And so it was then, in in about 2009, um, I said, "You know, I'm going to." I want to get involved in media production. Um, I had a background in that before I got into banking. Another story. Came down to Austin, Texas. Uh, ended up making a documentary in uh, about 10 years ago called Nullification, The Rightful Remedy with Tom Woods and Michael Bolden. Uh, did a national tour called Nullify Now with them back then. Some of your listeners may have may have remember that. And um, you know, that's kind of where I launched into into filmmaking and and then uh, for a season went to work for a company called Emergent Order, the guys behind the Keynes versus Hayek rap videos oh, yeah, that yeah. some people are familiar with, and learned a lot about high-end producing, writing, directing from my mentor John Popola there. And so yeah, but I've been on my own um, doing commercial filmmaking since then, really um, you know, working with all kinds of different all kinds of different work. Um, kind of got out of the political content game for a while because I just wanted to build a business, make money, uh, experience a little bit more personal freedom, right? Um, and realize that that was key for that. But a year ago, decided, you know what? I think I'm going to get back into making some provocative content. And the doorway to that for me was seeing what what was happening around the the 2020 election it felt very tea party what was happening with the stop the steal movement and maga yet i saw a little bit of an inoculation against the establishment in this crop of people that i didn't see back when the tea party happened and i was like hmm this could get really interesting and so on a whim me and a 
filmmaking partner of mine, you know, we just decided to hit the road for 10 weeks and, and, and my life's kind of not been the same since. I'm sure. And, uh, you, you really didn't, you really picked some, uh, some interesting subjects to choose to dive back in, into politics with That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I, you know, when I did the movie nullification back then, uh, you know, 10 years ago, like I, I didn't dare want to say the word secession when we were making that movie. I was like, we want to soften the edges a little bit about this. <laughs> and it's just funny because now it's like that conversation's kind of that's back so, in vogue. Seem so tame today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, well, what can I find that's more provocative? And I'm like, well, I'm making movies on two of the three subjects that'll get you strikes on YouTube right now. And it's also why I've lost my Twitter, uh, lost my Twitter and Facebook accounts was due to the films I'm working on. So, you know, it's, it's a crazy time. Uh, but, but I'm super excited about it, super excited about what's going on. And I think these issues are really at the forefront of some things. The, the, fu- the foundational issues kind of below the surface on both of these films, I think, are, are things that libertarians really need to be concerned about. And uh, I'd like to help some libertarians understand why they need to really be paying attention to what's happening in, with Jan 6 and what, what was happening uh, you know, with the election and, you know, how the the merger of big tech regime media, the political establishment, all of that has sort of lined up in order to to really have the kind of impact of what we're seeing around us right now. Yeah, well, that, that's what I want to dig into as well, because it does seem like many libertarians are are sort of still living in Ron Paul 2008 fantasy land in some ways and and still filter politics through that same time as if as if time froze then and it's it's just so clear especially with the events of the last couple of years that we live in a very different time and political alignments uh and uh and that sort of thing are just are just very different than they were um during that time so why don't we just start with when you first sort of caught wind of something going on with the 2020 election. Now we're really going to push it with this one. We're, we do stream on YouTube, but luckily we have our wonderful friends at Odyssey who are never going to touch us. So we will, this will live either way. Uh, so we can, we can go hog wild here as far as I'm concerned. Um, but why don't we just start with when you started to, uh, when you started to sniff something off with the election, was it, was it that, that night? Well, let me, may start first of all, by saying I voted for Gary Johnson in 2016 and I thought that Trump beating Hillary Clinton was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Okay, like that was, I laughed. And I didn't realize how much I wanted to see her go down. I didn't have any real affinity for Trump. Um, but over the course of the four years when Trump was in office, uh, you know, I, I still am philosophically and spiritually a libertarian. I say to some people, I don't know that I'm practically one when it comes to how we're going to wrest power back, you know, that's being used against us to take away our liberty. But um, you know, over the course of four years, what I started to recognize was that, uh, n- number one, I saw that the media and and all of these different cultural shaping forces were lining up against Trump in a way that I'd never seen before. Now, I saw how the forces that in power lined up against Ron Paul, but it was different. Ron, Ron Paul never became president, number one. Number two, yeah, Trump, who had international celebrity and wealth, and he found a way to like break the matrix, kind of became president by accident, you know? Like, I, I don't think that was supposed to happen. And so, what I started to recognize was that, oh, the left, when empowered by uh, ha- has big tech in its corner, regime media in its corner, academia in its corner, Hollywood, woke corporate. The left has that. The right doesn't have any of that. And so no matter how far off the rails the right might get, and I, t- I hear people talk about this, you know, it's like they don't have this 
other power center that makes it possible for those errors to happen, in my opinion. And so I don't, I don't want to say errors like it's a mistake. Like the things that can go wrong when the right is fully in power, um, it isn't as dangerous as the left, in my opinion. And so I started to see the left and the the danger of the media becoming something that isn't uh, challenging power anymore. Um, and and that's that's what I really believe was happening. And so um, as I as I was witnessing that happening. I started to recognize that, you know, I think that the they have to get rid of Trump. It's the mission. And I started to see what was happening with uh, the pandemic. And I was like, dude, this is designed to destroy the economy, to get rid of Trump. Like everything was about making sure Trump was gone. And one of the other insights that I had, and again, this is all before election day, I was like, you know, if a guy with international name recognition, a brand, wealth, a guy like Trump, who I believe was an outsider. I believe he was a third-party candidate that ran through the GOP and managed to win. If that guy can get taken out by all of these powers to make sure he never has a second um, you know, uh, term and to make sure that somebody like him can never get in again, we have no hope of any of these fantasies of like, oh, Ron Paul, like whenever, or the next Ron Paul, like guys, not going to happen. And so I started to see this as more of an existential threat of like uh, our elections being at stake. And I also want to say this, I'm not, I don't even necessarily care that much about voting. Like, I think that the myth of honest and fair elections is what's dangerous in society because most people believe it. And because they do, then it grants legitimacy upon everything that happens. It's like, well, we lost. Oh, well, like, you know, oh, you should have voted. And it's like, so the myth that it works the way that we're taught that it works, I think is what's dangerous. And so when on election night, I saw some things happening, I started to ask myself, hmm, I wonder what's really going on here. And so I, I didn't have a conclusion when I hit the road. Um, I, well, I wouldn't consider myself a MAGA guy when I hit the road. I was like, huh, I just want to find out what the arguments really are and why so many people are are mad. And so um, I, I took the, the small anomalies that I started to look at when the election results were coming in and in the, the next days afterwards and then uh, saw the 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 stop the steal movement start up and really all I did was I I found a way to connect with um, Ali Alexander who was running the stop the steal movement I connected with him on Twitter said hey uh, kind of want to get a documentary crew out to see what you guys are doing and he basically just was like wanted to make sure I wasn't some infiltrator from CNN trying to do a hit piece on him. And he was like, yeah, come on. So uh, we ended up meeting up with him in Georgia. And literally, uh, I was following that story until January 6th, essentially, uh, when I was also in D.C. All right, Kitty Cats, time to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors at I Trust Capital. You've heard me talking about these guys for quite some time now. They've been a tremendous sponsor, and I really want to encourage you guys, if you are investing in cryptocurrencies or if you are looking to invest in cryptocurrencies, to check out I Trust Capital. These guys help you do this not only very easily, very cheaply with the lowest fees in the industry, uh, but you can actually do that through their traditional IRA setup to protect those gains for your future. And now there is literally 
literally, literally starting today, there is no better time to sign up for an account with iTrust Capital. Why? Let me tell you why. Starting today, they are removing their monthly fee. So you can sign up and you do not have to pay any monthly fee for doing so. Also, they are now giving $100 worth of Bitcoin to everyone that signs up through our link and funds their account. You can find that link at itrust.capital slash lions. That's right. $100 of free Bitcoin for signing up and funding your account. And now there are no fees. So this is literally the best time to sign up for iTrust Capital. Go check it out at itrust.capital slash lions. All right. So let's let's kind of stick on the uh, the steel a little bit first. Um, and, yep. and you mentioned something, you know, that Trump wasn't supposed to happen and, and that, you know, elections have, have never been really legitimate. Do you think that that when it comes to Trump, like to an extent anyway, are national, at least at the national level, you know, I, I doubt, I mean, although there probably are cases where the, the mayor's elections are rigged and that sort of thing too. But do, do you think on the national level, in some sense, our elections have always been rigged? I mean, they have been for certain in the sense that at the end of the day, we end up with two candidates who the establishment pretty much approves of. So maybe they don't have to do that much actual rigging in that sense. Um, but when it came to Donald Trump, it did really seem like there were the hysterical reaction indicated that something broke, like this was not the plan. Uh, to the point that, I mean, Hillary and, and everyone around was you know, touting their victory before the election even happened. And it, do, it does seem like, like for once there was a true shock to the system. Like, whoa, we we made a mistake here. Like this was not supposed to occur. Yeah. And, you know, I, I tend to to agree with um, what I what I believe Curtis Yarvin t- talks about in unqualified reservations, you know, that freaking long document of his or whatever or set, set of ideas where he ta- describes how the cathedral sort of influences the public to do its bidding through the levers of voting and, and public policy and stuff. And so it's like you still have the idea that you're f- making free choices, but the information matrix has been so shaped around you that like you're not making free choices in those elections or the vast majority of people aren't you're you're making it based off of like complete fabrications of the state and and the state run media right and so what's happened is that over the last 10 years that a narrative grip has started slipping a little bit, right? It's like that has gotten away from the cathedral. And I think, honestly, the real risk right now, this, this the deciding factor is in the balances right now. It's whether or not we can give a, a push to the cathedral and it really collapses and that that free information begins to flow and can change society. And so... I think in 2016, it was just they didn't realize how they had lost control of the narrative, like how alternative sources of information were influencing people. And so I still to this day don't believe that the elections are fully rigged, right? Like I think that there's a a set of strategies that has to do with propaganda, but then there's also uh, legal or extra legal things that are done. And, and this is some things that we can talk about, but in in a way I feel like Trump was just a larger example of like what just happened with the Edward Durr guy who was the truck driver who just won in like New Jersey, Mm, a Senate seat. Mm -hmm. Like, I think he spent like $40 on his campaign or something. Yeah. Right. It's like 40% of his expenditures was at Dunkin' Donuts or something. It's like (laughs) really great. And it's like, and it's funny because the guy who he lost to actually put out a statement three days ago that he wasn't going to concede that thousands of votes had been found. 
And then today or yesterday, he just conceded. And I was like, I actually think it's a little peek behind the curtain of like, that that guy actually thought he, the establishment was going to have his back right. and keep him in there votes, with right? some Come on, guys. Yeah, it's like, oh, and then he realized, no way, like the heat on elections is a little too hot right now, you know, or whatever. But it, but it's like an Edward Durr, you know, will happen, you know, or th there's these anomalies that happens. There's these opportunities that occur. Ron Paul. Yeah. And so um, so I think and I, I would say, listen, a Thomas Massey wasn't supposed to happen. He was able to slip through in the Tea Party sort of wave. You know, there was a couple of things that that got through, you know. And so um, but my point is, is that Trump, I think, was kind of that like he he did slip through and Ever since then, what you will see, and and it, I encourage people to go read the Time Magazine article uh, from what I want to say in like February called "The Secret History of a Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election." The fortification, it is, if you will. Yeah, the election fortification article. Because in that article, they really talk about what went down, and it's it's put together with some language that makes it sound like it was all like above board or something, but it's. It's really the truth of the matter is ever since 2016, the establishment, which is the bipartisan Democrats and Republicans that depend on the status quo to remain how it is, to maintain these money flows and the power and influence, they began to try to figure out how can we prevent this from happening again in 2020. It goes back that far. Many of the things that were put in place from getting certain people put into into place as secretaries of state and run and on top of the boards of election to the uh, nonprofit networks that were set up to flow dark money through almost a half a billion dollars uh, that was spearheaded with like Mark Zuckerberg uh, money to do certain things to then also use uh, later in the game COVID as this cover to eliminate a lot of tried and true things that were done to keep elections more secure. Um, that was a thing that was sort of a blanket thing that was like, hey, we're going to do it real different this time because, you know, six feet and oh, the safety and oh, you know. So all of that stuff started to take shape, I think, over about four years. And, you know, I, I think I lost track of the, the question, but I think it was like, you know, was Trump supposed to happen or not? And I believe like, no, I believe it clearly wasn't supposed to happen. I'm not saying Trump's a libertarian. I'm just saying Trump was not an establishment player. And that's the distinction. And I think the other thing to really keep in mind is that Trump was also naive and a, kind of an idiot because he railed against the deep state, but he didn't understand that he was surrounded by people in his administration and cabinet and throughout the administrative state, which really runs the show, that wanted to destroy him. He seemed to think the deep state was more like his immediate political en enemies in the Democratic Party, not realizing that it's a lot faster than that. Yeah, exactly. And so I think he was found himself in a place where then he actually couldn't really do anything about it. And again, I'm not like some big Trump apologist, you know, like um, I, I, I think there's things that were good. And I think there's actually a lot good that's coming out of everything that's happened over the last four years as it, and oh, through COVID and all of that, that doesn't really have anything to do with Trump necessarily. But I think uh, there's a lot of things that, that are happening that wouldn't have happened if he wouldn't have been president, you know, that I think we, 
liberty can benefit from. Gotcha. You, you mentioned something there that I think a lot of people dismiss. They'll the kind of dis- dismiss the stop the steal stuff and um, everything associated with it as just like um, a Republican movement or something like that, where it's really more of an establishment movement versus non-establishment movement. Because a lot of people will point out, well, hey, look, even even Fox News conceded the election wasn't stolen. So, you know, they'll, they'll kind of still filter it through this bipartisan mentality, this bipartisan prism. Um, wh- why do you think it's important for you know, I guess libertarians in particular, that's kind of who we're talking to on this platform to, to recognize, even if a lot of the people that are involved in this movement are not libertarians to recognize sort of the, the importance behind the stop the steal movement more so than it is about any one election. How is it more a movement of, of truly anti-establishment movement that you even said is even more so than the tea party movement was? Yeah, yeah. So I definitely think that's true. And there's a lot in it that I would say is like, not useful for liberty. Like, I mean, I heard people making professions of loyalty to Trump that I found troubling. Okay. So, you know, um, but, but what I did discover, you know, like one of the biggest contingents of the stop the steal movement, uh, was a guy named Brandon Straka who started what was called the walk away movement. You know, he was like uh, a homosexual former Democrat who came over to Trump side and he had a Facebook page of like a half a million people. And he was bringing people from the left over to Trump from this anti-establishment position, you know, and he's currently awaiting, you know, trial and he's been, all his platforms have been, you know, destroyed. Um, you know, you had stuff like, um, Vernon Jones, who was a Democrat in Georgia, African-American who became a Republican. He's a Trump, you know, guy now for sure, who is a part of it. You had these interesting coalitions and then Ali Alexander and Roger Stone and, you know, uh, uh, you know, Nick Fuentes and Alex Jones, a lot of very interesting characters, you know, were involved. And what I would say is that um, the thing that was the thread that that brought people together there was this idea that they they be, they believed that this establishment um, sort of idea or that the the establishment saw Trump as a threat and that they would stop at nothing to get rid of him and that the fat and they believed that that was actually what happened through the election and and I want to make a distinction here too there's a lot of stuff that you got to recognize that when something like this would happen there's going to be a lot of disinformation at play and there's going to be a lot of infiltration at play and so even in trying to wade through everything that was happening through stop the steal and through like the you know, the news reporting of it on the right and on the left, you know, um, and then, and then in the alternative media, there's a lot of like having to sift that and be like, wait, are, were there really servers in Germany? And like, uh, is the Q thing true? Are there like these, there's a deeper, deep state that's actually playing 4d chess and like, you know, Trump's still going to be inaugurated even after the sixth happened, like lots of crazy stuff. And then, there was people who were staying true to the message that I was looking at, which was like, listen, you know, there was no chain of custody. COVID was used as a cover. The abandonment of signature verification, the the expansion of this thing called indefinite being indefinitely confined, which allowed you to like not have to uh, provide your identity. Like all of these election laws changed outside of state constitution. So it would normally have to go through the state representatives. And it was just 
by stroke of a pen done by an election board person or a secretary of state. Right? You know, we got, got this crazy disease it's, going around, so we can't wait yeah, for laws it, to pass or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and I and I and I'll sit here as well. Um, and I'll say, hey, listen, I, I'm not somebody who's also like, oh, the Constitution is so powerful. And and like, listen, that's a myth, too. But to the degree that we care about the rule of law at all, like should election laws be changed by s- state representatives if that's the way the state constitutions are set up? Or should that just be able to be violated in any emergency or by people who, you know, want to try to try to make those changes? It's like, no, like things should be done in a proper way. And so I quickly began to focus on some of this stuff that I think is, number one, absolutely provable. Number two, more important, like and doesn't live in this world of like conspiracy fantasy land, which I think did a lot to undermine the credibility of some of the strongest arguments about what happened and recognize that across five states, Trump lost by less than 60,000 votes. Like it's not that much. And so um, that that's what I saw. I saw a lot of people who were just like, hey, listen, you know, we think something's afoot. The other thing a lot of people don't talk about, Trump got like 12,000 more votes in 2020 than he got in 2016. Mm. People like to say that, oh, people showed up and hated Trump so much. That's why they voted for Biden and Biden got 81 million votes. And I'm like, guys, Obama got less votes second term. Like Trump got more. That's what seems baffling. That just seems so baffling to me. Obama, who was was clearly extremely, whatever you think about him, extremely charismatic, extremely popular. um, And Biden is the exact opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, so, and, and I just say, look, there's a lot of things that, that I think should give people pause. Um, and again, this all came to me as I was spent, you know, 10 weeks on the road looking at this, but, and for me, I think what's important is to recognize that we need a lot more people in this country to, to recognize how the game is run. Like we need to shatter these, you know, constitutional conservative myths. We need to shatter these, this idea of, and, and listen, I think part of the reason people have a lot of trouble with looking at this whole issue is because to shatter this myth in somebody's life, it's like the last thread that they have that we have any say over what is happening at the federal or even uh, state level is that like, at least we can vote the bums out. And if people really get their mind around the dire situation that we're in and just look at it for what it is, you're going to go through the five stages of grief, baby. Like you're going to have a lot to reckon with about your worldview, about what's going on in the greatest, freest nation that's ever been created on the face of the earth. And um, it's going to also lead you down some roads uh, about who's really the enemy of, of freedom here and like, you know, some misplaced trust that some of us may have in certain areas that, that, that those myths will be shattered as a result. Tell me a little bit about like some of the people that you've met that, that sort of constitute the stop the steal movement. Obviously you end up, you know, meeting the, the QAnon shaman. We'll talk about him a little bit and more in a bit, but like, who does this comprise of? Because if you just listened to uh, the people that just dismissed the whole thing, it's just a bunch of QAnon Trump loonies, but are, is the, is the, uh, is the stop the steal movement more diverse than that? Like, are there, are there anti-Trump people that ended up in this movement? Are there Democrats that ended up in this movement? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, like I had mentioned before, the biggest group, 
group of Democrats kind of came through this, you know, uh, walk away movement. Um, and I think that, you know, by and large, by the time the 2020 election came around, our society was so partisan, divided along partisan lines because of everything that had happened in the lead up to it. You know, remember, we got a guy who'd already been impeached once about like the whole Russiagate thing, which again is totally falling apart at this point. And, you know, like we had a whole situation going on where social media was actually shutting down, you know, mainstream uh, outlets from publishing anything about Hunter Biden and the corruption of Joe Biden, totally protecting him. And then you had a lot of people also, I think, who, who were starting to see some of that. I think the one thing that happened through COVID was people ended up being in their homes a lot. And a lot of people dove into the internet, started researching things, started talking about things. Like, I think a lot, I think the, the, the establishment overplayed their hand a bit uh, in what happened. And you had a lot of people who started waking up to like, wait, why can't you talk about any of this stuff online? Because the, the COVID discussion is what started getting shut down first, right? And it was like, I think that had a way of actually waking some people up to, we're not getting the full story from the mainstream media. Like maybe there was a lot of people that, that previously, they're just kind of too busy with their own lives, busy going to work, busy taking care of the bills. And now suddenly they're at home doing nothing and you know they got some time to explore things a little more. Yeah, exactly. I mean, most people are not freaking political weirdos like you and I who like consume all of this content, you know, and and then deliver it, you know. And it's like, yeah, most people are just trying to live their lives. And so um you saw with 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 the pandemic, you know, that and I say that in quotes, you know, but it's like you saw that that a lot of people, the the hand of the state touched them in a way that it hadn't before. And then there wasn't an opportunity to have a real discussion about it. And so I think that created the situation. The other thing that I think happened with Stop the Steal was you got to remember during the time that that was going down, people had been locked up for a long time, church services, like gatherings. And so then you had a bunch of people, like-minded people coming together for these rallies, forgetting about masks, like forgetting about whatever. And I think part of what gave it the power that it had and the diversity, by the way, of ideas and, you know, religious affiliations and race was it kind of felt like church to a lot of these people. And I know that that can be a little bit scary because it's like anytime, you know, we get some serious religious fervor around a political movement, you know, uh, but but people were coming together and meeting people who believed and thought the same thing they did. And, and they were able to talk about it all. It might take a religious fervor to combat a religious fervor anyway. That That is absolutely true. You know? So it's like, I, I think that, that that also fueled it. Like people were like, Oh, we can actually get together in person and we can talk about all this stuff <laughs> and we can't talk about it online. Yeah. And so that was there. I mean, I met people who quit their jobs and went to more of the Stop the Steal rallies than I did. And I was making a movie about it. You know what I mean? It's like, and, um, you know, so yeah. So like, you know, Ali, I, I, I developed a friendship with him. Um, you know, people have thrown a lot of, a lot of uh, aspersions at him. And it's like, look, I was behind the veil. Um, I don't think he's a grifter at all. Like, I think he's a, a hardworking person who really believes in what he believes in. And he's got a very powerful and dangerous skill set for the establishment. 
Um, he is a very effective communicator and organizer. Um, I don't think you've seen the last of him. Um, and, you know, I met people uh, like CJ Pearson, who is like a, a young, articulate guy who I don't even think was in college at that point, who's definitely a strong conservative voice. And, you know, I would talk to CJ and I'm like, he's full MAGA, full Republican. And like, what's he talking about? Federalism. You know, like he's talking about things that I agree with totally, you know, and that's another thing that I think happened with, with, with COVID is the spirit of federalism, people understanding, oh, wait, we can take power back at the state level and, and seeing that as a viable solution, man, that's, that's like something I've been pushing for, for 10 years, you know? And it's like, I think that seed got planted with a lot of people. And so people started to recognize that people also started to recognize they were forced to look into how elections actually happen. Who are the different players? What's going on there? And, um, you know, started to recognize, hey, wait a minute, we can actually occupy a bunch of these seats in the, the GOP uh, and take back, do this jujitsu move of taking back like all these seats nobody cares about um, and populating with people who think like we do. And that we're seeing that having that all started to take root at that time. And so, and I do think a lot of those people have a disdain for the establishment GOP. And I was at rallies where people were chanting Fox news sucks. You never heard that in the tea party. Trust no, me. And, and it was because they called Arizona so early. That's what they're mad about. You didn't even hear that at, you didn't even hear that at Ron Paul rallies. <laughs> right. Exactly. So like, I think there's a lot of uh, fertile soil there in the hearts and minds of a lot of these people. And I don't think, you know, I don't care if somebody becomes a big L libertarian for sure. And I don't care that anybody actually adopts that message at all or that label at all. Um, but what I see is a lot of people who recognize too much power has been concentrated at the top. They also, a lot of them, the scales have fallen from their eyes about the intelligence community and the military in a big way. It's uh, like I've that I've never seen on the right. And I'm like, boy, we got to really take advantage of this. People recognize that like the military isn't what you thought it was, right? The intelligence community isn't what you thought it was. These are not necessarily the good guys, folks. So you've got people who their illusions about mainstream media have been shattered. Their illusions about uh, the military, like they've had some eye-opening moments there and then about the intelligence communities. Dude, that's an opportunity. And so I think that's the opportunity that's there. And I, th I think that there's some evidence that um, the, the more uh, thoughtful libertarians who can communicate and can help uh, build single issue coalitions with some of these people, all that stuff can bear some fruit. There are many people, um, I'd say probably most people, and including within the libertarian movement, who really just dismiss the election thing. They say, you know, this is just nonsense. Like the election was was fair. Like don't don't bark up this tree. So what is just at least maybe there's one, even one piece of evidence that you've seen along the way that tells you outside gut instinct. Because honestly, that's what it was for me. <laughs> like I, I I woke up, I, I went to sleep with Trump winning, and I woke up with him losing, and that just felt icky to me. That's not evidence though. So what's one thing you can point to as just like something you saw or something you've seen along the way here that just told you, okay, this is more than just a gut instinct. Like this is, this is legit. I think that no matter what evidence you're presented with, if you have a worldview that is, that won't accept evidence mm -hmm. that, or that d prevents you from 
at looking at it objectively, it doesn't matter. Right. Like, I think it, I think from everything from this to the Rittenhouse trial, like mo most people are ego invested in their worldview and they're not going to give it up. And so two things that I like to start with that isn't evidence, but it's worldview shaping is, is number one, if somebody can recognize or get on board with the idea that if you believe that Trump is Hitler or you've bought into that narrative framing of Trump being like the fascist, if only he had everything he wanted, you know, he's the, he's the Hitler in waiting, right? If you believe that, then anything you would do to prevent him from getting a second term is moral. Sure. Yeah. So you, you need to recognize that that mindset exists and is there. And number two, I think we need to get real about something. Are we so naive as to believe that essentially the largest annual cash flows uh, and basically the largest corporation on the planet, the United States government is set up in such a way that the elections are left completely to the people and to chance. Like, I, I just think that there's a naivete that you have to have to think that all of these other aspects of government that we look at and can see corruption and can see cronyism and all of the other things at play, okay, we're like, yeah, 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 but the hallowed election is free and fair. And so those are two things that I think are almost, you have to have a space for those two ideas. You have to have a space for the idea that there are actually people who wanted to prevent Trump from being elected that believed that their cause was potentially moral and good um, that would participate in it, right? And number two, that the elections have actually been compromised for a very, very long time. And it the establishment depends on, and the cathedral depends on us not glimpsing behind that veneer. So that's the that's the the worldview shaping that I think makes it possible for this to go in, or at least some of that. And then when it comes to the evidences, a lot of it just has to do with some of the things that have been presented in um, either uh, open, you know, hearings or through affidavits. And listen, this is where it gets can get really messy because people will be like, "Oh, well, you know, Republican judges mm -hmm. said that this has no standing," or this, this, that, or the other thing. And it's like there's all of these different outs that people have, you know, to like not look at the evidence. And what I would say is that when you start going into some things that have been either acknowledged, you start with the Time Magazine article, okay? So the Time Magazine article actually sets a lot of this stuff in motion for me or for the average person because this is Time Magazine saying this is what happened. What they say in Time Magazine is that there was a cabal of people who came together to prevent Trump from being reelected. What they did is that their work, quote, touched on every aspect of the election. They got states to change voting systems and laws that helped secure hundreds of millions in public and private funding. They fended off voter suppression lawsuits, recruited armies of poll workers, and got millions of people to vote by mail for the first time. They successfully pressured social media companies to take a harder line against disinformation and use data-driven strategies to fight viral smears. Now, to somebody who's just a normal person, Sounds great. maybe you're going to read that 
and you're going to be like, oh, yeah, Time Magazine and the good guys who wanted to make sure evil Trump didn't get elected did all these things. But to the degree that you just look at that, and by the way, like I'm going to say right now, there's a statistic that says one in six Biden voters would have not voted for Biden had they received the information in the Hunter Biden laptop scandal leading up to the election. That's a lot more than 60,000. That's for sure. Yeah, dude. Yeah. And we now know, we now know, I mean, through a number of sources, like a lot of that stuff was absolutely true (laughs) completely. And it doesn't matter if you think like, listen, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you think is true or what, whether it matters. It's like our, uh, is censorship going to happen to protect candidates that was or Trump's not? Son. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. So that so you you get into some of that stuff where it just comes into the the narrative shaping right that happened in in the lead up to it that now it's kind of like oops well we got it wrong you know and then when you start digging into things like um, in Georgia right now they there's uh, seventy six thousand ballots ballot images that have not been surrendered through the Freedom of Information Act that are supposed to be stored for twenty two to twenty four months. The state of Georgia, different counties, uh, the number of counties, I think it's like, um, uh, I, I, I for, uh, forget, six counties has no images at all. Uh, 22 counties only have recount images, which is a whole nother issue. But, um, you know, there's uh, uh, 43,000 ballots in, in DeKalb County that have no chain of custody in them, meaning that there's no record of them being picked up at the ballot drop boxes and then delivered and signed off on, which is law. So it's like you start digging into some of these granular details that it's like bore yourself to tears to go into. And you find that there's all of these opportunities to create that 10,000 votes. And you start finding out, well, why? Why is it true that these ballot images are not missing for previous elections? Why is it true that you... um don't have chain of custody on the transfer of ballots. Like that was all of the mail-in and drop-off ballot voting was put in place with uh, most of them requiring that they were under surveillance 24 hours, or at least that we have chain of custody logs. And so what, what has happened is that everything I've just mentioned that is true, and this is one state I'm talking about, but, and there's five definitely that are under scrutiny, all of these questions that I've just brought up is the same stuff that has been leveled against the those who would audit the elections. So when the audit was happening in Arizona, Rachel Maddow will come out and talk about how they didn't have chain of custody on the ballots to go from here to here. Total lie. The, the, the audits that happened in um, Arizona were under 24-hour surveillance. They had f- uh, four individuals countersigning when ballots were moved from one way to another. That you know, all of these things were in place. The The establishment media has told lies blatantly about all that. And then when it comes to the actual elections, they've not h- held that same standard to it. And so it's difficult for the average person to look at the, the ocean of lies, spin and propaganda that came out around this. And, and honestly, I think it took somebody, now I'm, I'm not responsible for exposing any of this stuff by any means. I'm just saying, I'm somebody who, in a lot of ways, I didn't have as much of a dog in the fight. I did vote for Trump in 2020. The reason I voted for Trump was because I believed it was a vote of self-defense. 
I wanted to buy us time because everything that's happening right now, I am not surprised about that the powerful cultural shaping institutions would be able to, to get behind a guy like Joe Biden, who's fully bought and paid for by the establishment to move everything in this direction, counter liberty very, very quickly. That's the reason I voted for Trump. And, uh, but it was not because I thought he was a libertarian or not because I thought that he was going to do all of these liberty-minded things, but I just really thought it would give myself and people that I love more time to become cancel-proof, more time for us to build our liberty in our own lives and try to pivot because I think we've got a serious problem on our hands. And so, but, but I went into this really looking at some of these issues. What I don't believe is that necessarily the arguments made by guys like Mike Lindell about Dominion voting are true. I don't believe that there's some secret white hat cabal of double deep staters who are letting all this stuff play out and then they're just going to make all these arrests somewhere down the line and Trump's going to be reinstated. I don't believe any of that crap. And, um, you know, and people will maybe have an issue with that. But so I think if you keep to this facts and the data and you look at these specific anomalies in the different states, you know, what was done illegally, what was not done according to those state constitutions, it's more than enough to shift it. Um, that's what I think is the truth. And, uh, you know, if we get canceled for it, so be it. Yeah, it happens. I think that's a really good point, you know, at, at this point. And when it comes to politics, I mean, I, I've usually, at least pretty much since the Ron Paul days weighing down, I've been pretty much not anti-politics. I cover politics for Lions Liberty. I host a lot of debates, but personally I've just been kind of like whatever about it, but something about the last two years has, has kind of shown like we are in a really difficult situation here. And you know, this is not 2008 anymore. And if you need to make a political decision that you might not have made 10 years ago, that doesn't line up fully with your principles per se in a pure way. Um, I, I think you can justify that just based on the current situation in, in the self-defense way. And I don't think doing so, I don't think voting for Trump, for example, violates the, the non-aggression principle or, or voting for Ron DeSantis violates the non-aggression principle, because what you're really doing is trying to buy yourself time from a very obviously bad situation. Yeah. And I, I want to make a quick statement about this. You know, I, I did something, I did a video earlier this week or last week. I actually went and broke down 100 races that libertarians one. I went and looked at all the voting data from just this past uh, like election. Big L, Big L, LP. Yes, exactly. Because the LP put out this statement that were like, we broke records. We got more libertarians elected to office than ever in history. I looked at 100 of the races. Uh, there's a, there was at least 200 that happened, but I looked at probably close to half. And ones where libertarians won. That's it. I didn't look at the ones where they lost. Okay. Just where they won. 84 out of 100 were unopposed hyperlocal races. Meaning the libertarian is running against no one. The, the, the fact the L is didn't really matter. there. The L didn't matter. Anybody who'd have been on the ticket and, and, and truthfully, listen, and I'm not taking anything away from filling up constable seats and auditor seats and all these different things. Fine. Let's do it. I just going to say a Republican who would have filed to be in there would have gotten it. And so would a Democrat. And by the way, if a Republican would have filed against the libertarian, the libertarian probably would have lost because I looked at a bunch of other races and I'm like, oh, when they're opposed, they lose at any level of significance. And so, and levels of insignificance, same, same races, but they're, they're opposed. And so I, personally, like, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I love, I love libertarians. I love the LP. I love you guys, you know, like as brothers, but I'm going to tell you right now, 
if after being in existence for as many decades as they have, that we're going to say the record-breaking results are that 84% of the wins are against nobody, I'm going to say, listen, that doesn't bode very well because even the argument that that's going to allow us to start low and move up the move up the ranks, I'm like, guys, as soon as you get into a race that is being competed for by a major party, you lose. So we don't have the time to wait another 20 years for all of our constable candidates to establish themselves in the political machinery to become state reps. And no, we don't have that time. And so I, I am you know, finding myself, though I'm a s- supporter of the Mises caucus, you know, 50 bucks a month. Um, and I support a Dave Smith running as LP for president because I think getting the message out onto platforms of tens of millions of people like Tim Pool and, uh, you know, Joe Rogan is powerful. I don't by any chance believe that we're winning, going to win elections that have a significant impact on whether I experience real liberty in my life uh, through the LP. That's where I'm at right now. And I've got the data now, I think, that backs it up. I used to just have a, an idea about this. And so, but the reason I, the reason I'm just kind of going off that rabbit trail is like, I wouldn't have anybody think that, number one, I'm all about elections or all about pol- winning political seats. And that's why I'm interested in, in the Stop the Steal movement. I would say, again, I think there's something that needs to be shattered that's a bigger myth here. And that is, do we have voice and do we have exit? That's whether, that's whether we have liberty. And if we have no voice or the voice is highly compromised, then that is a significant problem. All right. And if we don't have exit and with everything we've seen over the last 18 months, the exits have been closed. Like you tell me why that's not slavery and you tell me why that's not violent aggression against me. And I'll leave it there. I won't argue with that rant at all. Some others might. Maybe we'll get into it with them on Twitter or something like that. All right, gang, got to take one quick break to tell you about our amazing, wonderful friends and supporters over at Lorenzotti, Italy. Lorenzotti, Italy is the number one place for you to stop and order some fine premium Italian coffees delivered right to your door in these neat little tins. And if that wasn't enough, you get to do so knowing you're helping a sponsor of this program. And if that weren't enough, you get to order using your Lions of Liberty discount code. That discount code is ROAR, and it gets you 10% off your order. So head on over to Lorenzotti.coffee and use discount code ROAR for 10% off some frying premium Italian coffees. Mm-mm-mm. Yummy, yummy, yummy. One thing I definitely want to touch on, Jason, is um, your encounter with the encounter or your interview with uh, the QAnon shaman. Um, And obviously, like your involvement with the Stop the Steal movement led you directly to be there on. Here we go, YouTube, January 6th. Um, So I guess first, just start by telling me how you kind of um, obviously like just covering the Stop the Steal, I'm sure is what led you to be there at the Capitol on January 6th. But what was your perspective just as a filmmaker, as not necessarily a participant, but someone who has at least known a lot of these people and gotten to know some of them along the way? Um, what, What do you think turned January 6th from a simple protest into something really more? And what... What exactly do people believe about it? Most people anyway, maybe outside our, our circles that that just is simply not true. Yeah. So what I do want to say is, is our encounter with Jake Angeli, the Q shaman is really, really interesting. And um, we currently still have the only on camera full length interview with Jake right after he got in there before he went to jail. Like um, and the way that that happened was because 
we ran into him in Arizona, which is where he's from. He was at some of these events. Then in December, we were in DC and he was there. He was chanting and drumming and he was dressed different, but he was, uh, you know, because he's got kind of a more business. He's got more of a business radical outfit than, than, than the horns outfit. And so we interviewed him in December in DC. We sat down with him, talked to him for about a half an hour. Didn't think we'd see him again. So then I'm there with my crew. We're shooting stuff around the whole event in, in January 6th. And the reason we we're there is because uh, Ali Alexander and Stop the Steal actually had a permitted stage on one of the sides of the Capitol that speeches were going to happen for four hours while inside the Capitol... All of these different representatives, 100 representatives and some senators were going to object, right? So we were going to be just giving speeches, filming it, and uh, that was going to happen on the inside. So um, I went over to the Capitol. Uh, I've got film that I shot on my iPhone of the first breach of the gates because I left the Trump rally early to go set up the stage. I was like, if I got to get over there now to get the cameras up, because otherwise it's going to be tons of people here. I mean, and there was a half million people in DC that day, closer to a million in my opinion. It's the most people I've ever been surrounded in. It was, it was massive. And so I saw those initial breaches happening and uh, I looked and I was like, there's like four or six cops on that hill. I'm like, this is going to get bad. Cause I'm, cause there's thousands of people in waves coming, you know? And I'm like, pretty soon there's gonna be a hundred thousand people over here. And so I immediately was like, Hmm, this is sort of odd. Um, I had the good sense not to go in or not to like, you know, film. I think I would be incarcerated right now if I did. Um, and so, yeah, so, so kind of observed what was going on that whole time. And while I was observing it, what was interesting was like the internet was terrible. It was so bogged down around DC. So a lot of us didn't see what was being reported on about it while it was happening. Well, my production partner was at the hotel room offloading some footage and he sees the picture of Jake with the horns and face paint hit the internet and he texts it to me and it came through and he's like, dude, Jake got in. And we're like, oh my God, we interviewed this guy like a month ago. So long story short is we texted him you know, a little later and we're like, hey man, you want to do an interview? And he's like, yeah, sure. And he has no idea the kind of trouble he's about to be in. He's totally clueless. Just thinks he went into he the didn't... Capitol and kind of, you know, played around for a bit and called it a day. Yeah, he's like, he's like, I walked in an open door. I went up uh, to the Senate and led a prayer, you know, like, uh, you know, and then when Trump asked me to leave, we left, you know, <laughs> and, and, and so, um, we, we set it up. He comes in, sits down with us for like over an hour the next morning. We get the whole story from him. What's incredible is everything he told us has not been contradicted by a single frame of video that I've seen come out since. And none of, we didn't have the benefit of that at that time. Like he's telling us less than 24 hours what happened. And so sits down with us, we see him off, he gets in a car and he ends up going back to Arizona. And, you know, a couple days later, he's in custody and he's essentially been in solitary confinement most of the 310 days he's been locked up since then. And um, I'll pivot back to the sixth real quick, but I do want to explore Jake's story just a little bit to give context around it because Jake went home and uh, voluntarily called the FBI. I mean, we've got uh, all of the footage of the phone calls he had with the FBI on his way home. Like we've got the greatest access to Jake's story of anybody who's documenting his story out there or attempting to. And 
you know, he talked to the FBI willfully, basically surrendered himself, still didn't think he was in trouble because he was planning on going to a rally at the Arizona Capitol afterward. His costume was in the backseat of his car. And so he's taken into custody. Um, um, after that, when they do his first sentencing hearing to see if he's going to get bail, there's still a lot of misinformation about what actually happened at the Capitol. There's stories about how he was violent, how he had a weapon, how multiple officers were killed. All of that stuff is still in the ether. And so he's not given bail. Then he's sent to D.C. Uh, after that, and he spends the rest of his time in D.C. slash Arlington, 23 hours of lockup a day for what's been seven, eight months at this point, and was denied bail all along the way. Part of the reason denied bail is because he is the mascot of Jan 6. Now, that's not his fault, really. He was made that. The media narrative definitely made him that. He was not a planner of it. Nobody's even claimed that. And as he has now pled guilty to a felony, so he pled guilty in, in September to a felony, the felony that they've thrown at a lot of these guys, about 200 of them, is interrupting an official proceeding, I think, basically interrupting Congress. Felony that carries up to 20 years. And what's happened is the Department of Justice has not provided discovery they have not released the full 14,000 hours of video to the defendants on these cases, violating a, a speedy trial uh, all over the place. Like, because these people have been locked up for months, seven months, eight months, some of these people still haven't seen the evidence against them. The, the trials are not getting scheduled till early 2022. And so what you've seen is, in my opinion, the Department of Justice slow walking this content. In fact, I just saw a, a, a statement the other day. The Department of Justice has released footage to HBO for a documentary they released that they haven't given to the defendants. Wow. It's crazy. <laughs> and so wow. they are just like your legal man podcast from a few days ago where he talks about how they want him to plead out. Mm -hmm. They're trying to get as many of these guys to plead out as possible to just, to just give up. You know, they're stuck in solitary this whole time. They're not getting evidence. So they, you know, they just want to break. They, they've lost their jobs. They've lost their houses. They've lost their families. A lot of these people, they don't have money like, and they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel and they're seeing the politicization. And they're like, even if I do go to trial, what's going to happen to me? So Jake cut a deal. Uh, right now he gets sentenced on the 17th and they're looking, the government is looking to give him 41 to 60 months, I believe, or 41 to 50 months or something like that of additional time for what? Interrupting an official proceeding, not insurrection, not violence, nothing. And a lot of what they're going for is they're saying, well, hey, you know, kind of the icon of the movement. Sorry, uh, we're going to, we have to make an example out of you. So I think that's what we're going to see happen. And that leads me into what I think is really, really critical for people to recognize about the sixth and re re uh, recognize about the danger of what we're doing as, as people who love Liberty, you know, the sixth has been spun as a narrative that the establishment depends on that it's worse than nine 11 versus worse than the civil, civil war. Yet there's not an insurrection charge, very few gun charges or like weapons charges. I don't think there's a single gun charge. You know, nobody brings freaking guns into D.C. You're going to get yeah. in a lot of trouble for that. Death was a protester. Yeah, yeah. Unless we count uh, police officers who commit suicide in the months or weeks following after. You know, it's like under odd circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Or people have heart attacks. You know, because it was well, it was it was worse than 9/11. So if I have a heart attack a few days later, it was because I was there. So that's the rationale. But um, 
But the but what's come out, and I think Darren Beatty has done a lot of great reporting of this, Revolver.News. I think Tucker Carlson is one of the only people out here talking about this stuff. And um, I'm scheduled to go on Tucker's show in the next couple of weeks to talk about this very thing. But has discovered, oh, wait, there looks like there was federal Fed infiltration. Uh, number one, anybody who remembers what happened during the civil rights movement and the freaking Black Panthers and all that stuff, the government's been infiltrating anti-government organizations forever. And it's like, right now, all we have is guys like Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, Tucker are even talking about this. Like, hey guys, the, the feds instigated a lot of this. And by the way, here's another piece of information your listeners might not know. The guy who ran the field office office for the FBI in Michigan when the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping case happened, which has been now exposed, which was like in three months prior to Jan 6 or whatever, um, like or six months prior, that was full of feds, okay? They, they tried to raid the Capitol and they were going to quote unquote uh, kidnap the governor. The guy who ran that field office was then transitioned to DC and was running the DC field office for Jan 6. So there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that Michigan you can, you can write this stuff. I mean, yeah, the Michigan was like a pre-op and there's a lot of very interesting questions about fed infiltration there. And so I'm not saying the majority of the people on Jan six were feds. No, 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 no. Trust me. That's fine. What you had on Jan six was a lot of MAGA people who feel like they'd never gotten a fair hearing about the election, that judges across the board kicked these cases away because of standing or latches or all these really weird things, never got their day in court, never got the evidence to be presented. They were angry. They were annoyed. But what they were planning on doing was rallying, listening to speeches, and while their representatives were objecting inside the chamber. In fact, I know this is the truth because I was around for the planning calls that happened for Stop the Steal. I was there when when we were getting all of the different representatives and senators. And when I say I was there, I was documenting it. It's like they they were working to get as many reps and senators to stand up and object during that whole certification as possible. It would not have been helpful to the case of what Stop the Steal been planning for months to go into the Capitol and shut that down. And in the process, turned many of the hearts of the people they had worked so many months to get on their side, turned them, turned them away, right? And so I think the real story here is how the media narrative and the aftermath has shaped public opinion about it, how there was federal infiltration, and how Patriot Act 2.0 is being ushered in being uh, utilized by this narrative to take the freedoms away from people like you and me to make it more and more difficult for us to get election transparency, to make it more and more difficult for us to protest against the government. All of these things that are critical. Um, that's what's happening. And um, I think the injustice is that the law is not being equally applied to people who are on the Trump MAGA side of interrupting a, a proceeding in Congress and the Democrat side of interrupting a proceeding in Congress. Um, you know, a guy was just sentenced yesterday, 41 months in jail for assaulting a police officer. He pushed a police officer and he punched him in the helmet. That did happen. You know, that police officer touched him. That that went down. 41 months. That isn't that's not a normal sentencing for a case like that. Like, you know, the police officer wasn't really injured. I'm not saying what he did was fine, mm -hmm. but 
they're setting a very high precedent um, for these guys. This guy's already been in jail uh, for many, many months. Um, with Jake, I think he's going to get the maximum or close to it. I think he's going to be locked up for a while. And our intention is to get the film out <coughs> Excuse me. sometime in the coming year, telling the full story as we see it. Um, and, and hopefully we'll get it to a, a broad audience. Hopefully so. And hopefully we can uh, help with that, Jason. So why don't you just let everybody out there know uh, before we sign off here, how they can find out about both these documentaries and how they can help uh, get them out there. Yeah. Yeah. So you can check out the steel.com. You'll see a trailer and get a sense as to what's going on there. Um, and then you'll see, uh, uh, go to Q sent me movie.com Q sent me movie.com. Now we don't have a trailer up there right now. We're waiting to drop that on the 18th. Uh, after Jake gets sentenced, we don't want to impact his sentencing with additional content that's out there. Uh, I will tell you that, um, the, the Q sent me trailer when we released that in January, right after we got Jake's interview, a documentary trailer about a movie, about an individual of national significance. That's when I was permanently suspended from Twitter and Facebook uh, because of that trailer. YouTube pulled it down. And um, I do have accounts out there right now that you know um, I you can find me on, uh, but I'm still permanently suspended as far as they're concerned. I mean, I, I imagine if they discovered I had these other accounts, I, those would get taken down. Your secret's safe with me. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, you know, but I do appreciate the invite, dude. I appreciate you sharing the content. I do think that anybody who's doing so is obviously taking a risk because this narrative is dangerous to the establishment. It's dangerous to the people in power. That's why they're trying to shut us up. And uh, you know what? I, I appreciate the support of your listeners and I appreciate what you're doing, man. Well, thanks, Jason. I really appreciate what, what you're doing too. And, uh, you know, we'll see how long this one lasts on YouTube, but it'll, it'll live somewhere. That, that's for sure. <laughs> Awesome, man. So th thanks a lot, Jason. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. All right. Thanks. All right, kitty cats. I hope you enjoyed that very dangerous conversation with Jason Rink, one that is sure to get us strikes or uh, bans or something from somewhere. But I don't really care because I'm here to be truthful and to, to spread the truth and to spread the message. And uh, I don't know the truth about everything that Jason talked about, but I know what his experience and what he has found through his making of these documentaries. And that is what I'm here to bring to you guys today. Uh, of course, my compatriots are going to do their own version of bringing you their truth. Brian McWilliams is doing that in his very acerbic rant filled style every Wednesday on electric Liberty land. While John Odie Odermatt does the same on finding freedom every single Thursday. You just can't miss it. You just can't beat this deal. Three shows for the price of one. That price is free. Just hit that subscribe button and you get all the wonderful Lions of Liberty content delivered to you each and every week. You can also support the show over at Patreon at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty or at lionsofliberty.locals.com for the Patreon adverse. Uh, we do all sorts of bonus audio and video content for our patrons shows like conspiracy corner degenerate gamblers bonus live streams uh, extra segments with guests that sort of thing you can get it all either on patreon or locals uh, i also want to again mention los libertinos you got to check out my interview with carlos Ablar and los libertinos find that on youtube or podcatchers also i believe it'll be airing a little later this week i just did an interview with brian nichols on the brian nichols show over on the we are libertarians network really enjoyed that one as well so check them both out until next time my friends live long and live free